Every month, we offer exciting new webinars for our community. Topics include how to use retirement accounts to buy real estate overseas, how to get a second passport in Latin America, why you should sell your stock portfolio and move your money offshore, how to buy beachfront rental properties in Brazil for less than $100,000, or apartments in Paraguay for less than $60,000. If you want to join us for free for these presentations with live Q&A, insider secrets, and exclusive opportunities with my professional network of experts, then go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for free upcoming presentations. expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. We all dream of seeing the world, but the realities of living somewhere outside your place of birth can be daunting to say the least. Welcome to the Expat Money Show, helping you make the most out of your overseas career through conversations with successful expats on investing, entrepreneurship, self-improvement, and continual education, all while sharpening your financial acumen. Now, please welcome your host with over 20 years of overseas experience, Mikkel Thorup. Hey everyone, I am so excited about today's episode and I can't wait to get into it and share it with you. But I just wanted to remind you before we get going today to visit expatmoneyshow.com and sign up for my private newsletter, EMS Pulse. Right now we are sharing the weekly episodes from the podcast, but also a ton of other products and services that we're going to be offering, lots of language programs, lots of tips and tricks for being an expat, whether you're a first-time expat or an expat hopeful. There's just so much going on at expatmoneyshow.com. I really hope that you get a chance to come and visit us, join the newsletter, and then from there, maybe join our Facebook group at expatmoneyforum.com. Lots happening. I really want to share it with you guys, and the best way to stay connected is through these two sites, expatmoneyshow.com and expatmoneyforum.com. Thanks so much. Enjoy today's episode. Cheers. Welcome, welcome, welcome. My name is Mikkel Thorpe. This is the Expat Money Show, and today's guest is one of the world's leading futurists and experts in artificial intelligence, AI. He is a sought-after keynote speaker who guides his audience through the key lessons on how to work, live, thrive, and innovate in the coming years. Please welcome to the show, Ben Hammersley. Ben, how are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing excellent. I'm really excited to have you on the line today, and I want to know what a futurist is. But first, I just want to hear a little bit about your backstory and how you got working in this field. Well, I have one of those jobs that makes my parents cry in that it's not a real job. I started off, I guess, 20 years ago as the technology reporter for the Times newspaper in London. And over the next couple of decades, I, I did a mixture of technology, journalism, foreign news journalism, so war correspondence. I was in Afghanistan and Beirut and, and various sort of exciting places like that. And television and radio and magazines. I started up a Wired magazine in the UK and lots of journalistic things. But at the same time, because of the technology work I was doing and I was, I was building a lot of technology and making a lot of websites, I built the blogging platform for The Guardian, for example. And also the, the war correspondence that I was doing, where I was going and meeting lots of interesting insurgent groups and terrorist organizations and so on. It started off because I was finding many parallels between Silicon Valley and global non-state insurgent groups like, say, Hezbollah in, in Beirut. And so I was giving talks around the world about that, about the parallels between their different innovation models. And that led to me consulting for the British government and the American government. And then over the years, the consulting 
grew larger and the journalism grew smaller and and here we are today. And so what I do today now as as a futurist is that I I act as a consultant and an advisor to people, to corporations, lots of corporations and and to some Western governments about the different scenarios that they're going to find themselves living in or operating in, in say three, five, at the most maybe 10 years away from today and help them think about what those scenarios imply in terms of what they need to be doing today in order to prepare for those worlds in the future. And it's an interesting job because most large organizations, governments, banks, large retailers, and so on, they're very, very focused on on the present day, and they're very inward-facing, whereas my job is to be very outward-facing and to think about the implications of today's world, where today's world will lead us to, and then help them get there or help them avoid going there, uh, as can be the case. That's really fascinating. So when you work with these companies, do you usually have a time frame that you like to work out from? Is it, say, 12 months out, or is it more like 12 years out? No, it's actually, I would say, about three to five years. Anything shorter than that, and they're already planning for it. And anything longer than that, and I'm basically bullshitting. I mean, this is one of the interesting things that we've found recently, uh, or certainly over the past decade, as far as futurism or scenario planning or all of the different sort of related fields, they're all basically the same thing, is that when the field was invented in the 60s, it was working on what we would call a sort of prediction timeline or a, or a prediction horizon of about 20 years. And that did work in the 60s. It certainly doesn't work today, given the geopolitical instabilities around the world, given the rate of the pace of the rate of the pace of change of technology i would say that anything more than three to five years it's certainly more than five years away is almost guaranteed to be wrong it might be wrong in an interesting way and so it's always fun to talk about the world in 10 or 15 or 20 years time but it isn't actionable in the way that my clients need it to be you know you you we can talk about flying cars or dome cities or colonies on the moon or something like that and and we can spend a very entertaining afternoon doing that but it's basically pointless but we can talk about what the world will be like when we're halfway to flying cars or halfway to having a colony on the moon in say five years time and that is very useful yeah a lot more illustrative for something like that it is and what i think is very difficult for people to grasp because it's so close to their lives is that there's a general rule of thumb that says that Every 10 years or so, a new technology comes out which radically transforms the universe. And so 10 years ago, for example, it was the smartphone, the launch of the iPhone about 10 years ago. And if you compare the world as it is today with the world as it was 10 years ago, in terms of your day-to-day existence, in terms of what you're capable of doing just with the thing that's in your pocket, it's a radically different world. But certainly, it's a radically different world than the developed in the developed West or the developed North. And so all of those different transformations that have happened in 10 years because of the smartphone, if you'd asked me 12 years ago to, to predict what the world will be like in 2018, I could have given you a good idea, but I would have been completely wrong. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, completely wrong about everything, literally everything. I mean, I would have been completely wrong about the politics, certainly. I would have been completely wrong about consumer technology and, and its effects on society. And so would everybody else. But I can certainly give you an idea of what the world would be like in three years' time. And that's much more useful. Well, I definitely want to jump into those things, but just go a little bit back in the conversation. I have to ask, how are you making similarities between Silicon Valley and terrorist cells? I, I, I'm really curious about this. And then I want to jump straight back on to what we expect in the next three to five years. Okay, well, I mean, it, 
it's actually quite straightforward parallel. If you think of of a small terrorist group anywhere in the world, or, or insurgent group that you know you don't have to it doesn't have to be they don't have to be the bad guys, right? They can be the they can be the the rebels from Star Wars. They're usually small. They usually have a limited budget. They have to use things which they can buy in the regular marketplace. That means they have to be agile. It means they usually prototype and test very, very, very quickly. They have a prototyping cycle that's very, very fast. They change their tactics in response to their results very quickly. They pivot very quickly. They're usually made up of the same sort of people. You know, they're usually made up of ambitious young men in their 20s. And so, you know, there are many, many parallels. I think the easiest way to to describe it as well is in contrast. If you contrast uh, a terrorist group or a small startup against a large regular army or a large regular corporation, a large regular army or a large regular corporation is, is made up of many, many more people, which means there's a much longer command line, which means that they're much less agile. They find it very difficult to buy things. Actually, procurement is a major problem to large corporations or large armies. They can't just see something in a... Because of the bureaucracy or... Yeah, because of bureaucracy. And so silly things like I did some work once for the British government where I was building some technology for them. And we had to buy something from a... We had to buy some web hosting, right? And, you know, web hosting is something that's trivial to buy and it costs whatever, £10 a month or something. It was a very simple thing. And first thing, we went to the governments of the official list of government suppliers. And for something that I could buy personally on my credit, personal credit card for £10 a month, the government suppliers were charging £10,000 a month because they were government suppliers. And they were, it wasn't the same. You know, it was exactly the same thing. And when I caused enormous amounts of internal fuss and almost got sacked, because I said, and because I said, look, I'm just not paying that. That's 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 fraud. That's stupid. I'm just going to use this, you know. Just go out there and get GoDaddy or something like that, and off to the races. Well, it was actually Rackspace, but yes, right. I went, you know, I was like, oh, let's go and get a Rackspace account for the ten quid a month, and we're, um, like, why are we even having this discussion? We found that it was actually impossible for us to buy it because. The purchasing department weren't set up to make purchases that small. <laughs> they were used. They were used to having purchase orders and issuing a government check, and like the smallest amount you could do that for was like five thousand pounds, something like that. And so, in the end, I actually paid for it myself, and just like swallowed the cost because I couldn't deal with the idea of like this was going to take me another six weeks of bureaucracy to buy something which I could literally just buy online from my phone in a Starbucks, right, at lunch break. And so the same thing you see with the difference between, say, Hezbollah and, like, the Lebanese army or Taliban and the Americans is that if the American army wants a drone, they have to go to Boeing or McDonnell Douglas or a big drone manufacturer and they have to buy a million-dollar drone and they have to wait two years for it to be delivered. If the Taliban want a drone, they go to a shopping mall and they buy one, right? <laughs> yeah. And... And right now, everybody who's listening to this can think of the nearest shopping mall where you can go and buy a drone, right? And they cost, you know, whatever they cost, you know, a few hundred dollars, you know, a couple of thousand at the most. And that's just as sophisticated as a military drone. It's just that a military drone takes, takes a year to, to arrive. And so this was, the, this was the difference, is that certainly in the mid-2000s, we found that if you wanted to be an asymmetric 
warrior, as it were, if you wanted to be an insurgent group against a large incumbent, then the way that you would operate as a, as a military insurgent or the way you would operate as a commercial insurgent, as in, you know, your startup is taking on the big boys in whatever sector you're in, um, is effectively the same thing. You know, you get, your, you know, you have a, a handful of dudes who are exactly the same, you know, have the same idea as you. You get some incredibly cheap office space. You know, you buy some post-it notes. You, you, you plan the thing out based on technology you can buy from the local hardware store. And, and like you say, you're off to the races. Whereas large organizations can't do that. And so a lot of my work is, is based around trying to help large organizations see those threats. I, it's very, very difficult to help them react in, in the same way. I think there have been many, 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 many mistakes made by large organizations attempting to set up innovation departments and, and like future labs and things like that. And, and for many reasons, they don't work. In fact, many reasons, they, they're quite disastrous. But, but what I can help people do is see those other people, see, see the threats that are coming from behind them or from a direction in which they're not looking. Although many people do find it a little bit distasteful, it is actually a very well-attested parallel. And certainly, those insurgent groups learn from Silicon Valley uh, the other way around. So if you if you go to if you go to Lebanon and you go and meet with, with Hezbollah, for example, very very interesting organization. Their chief technology officer is incredibly sophisticated, and as are the chief technology officers of, say, the drug cartels or any of the other large groups in that way. Yeah, I'm reading an economics book right now. I think it's called Narconomics, and they're talking about how the big drug cartels base a lot of their organizations off of giant companies like Walmart and General Electric, and they base the same type of business model. So it's interesting to see the parallels between big business and something like that, and in this case, how startups are influencing insurgents groups around the world. Yes, and certainly, you take once you strip away the morality of the action or the you know the morality of the trade, the basics are the same. And when, so it's very useful to be able to study those things because if you're organizing a global supply chain, then you can look at the global supply chain of Walmart, or you can look at the global supply chain of the, like you say of the drug cartels, and they're basically the same. But lessons can be learned from everywhere. Yeah, it's super interesting. Not something that a lot of people would think of uh, straight off the bat, but actually when you start digging a little bit deep, it does make sense. And then, like you said, leaving the morals aside. Yes, exactly. And so now, of course, the problem is, is that some people leave the morals far too behind, but that's, uh, that's another story. So you mentioned when we were just talking that some companies are setting up futurist labs. What does that look like? It's a cliche. Usually what they do is they will take uh, some office space in a, in a more trendy part of town. So in London, for example, it would, be, it would be Shoreditch. Or in New York, it might be Brooklyn or somewhere like that. And they would get some really nice sort of bare brick, beautiful high ceiling, lofty sort of office space. They would fill it full of nice expensive standing desks and bean bags and <laughs> fridges filled with free food. And then they would go and they would hire a whole load of coders and designers and the sort of freakier looking, the better. And then they would take the youngest of their up-and-coming directors and they would put them in charge of it. And then what usually happens is they have an opening reception and somebody like me might come along, and I used to do this quite a lot, I used to go, come along and like, give an opening keynote about the, you know, the, the power of the future and all that sort of thing. And then the CEO will stand up and the CEO, every single CEO I've ever seen do this makes the same speech, which is where they mention that they take their tie off 
and they say they're standing there and you can tell that this is innovative because they're not wearing a tie and how amazing it is that when they started everybody wore ties and now look he looks around and he sees people wearing hoodies and that's incredible and then he'll talk, he'll talk about how the future of their business is is the digital future and it'll be some empty nonsense and then they will make a couple then they'll go on for about six months and they'll make a couple of prototypes but what uh, and then it'll eventually fade into nothing and then it'll be closed down about two years later <laughs> and the reason it fades into nothing is because it's in a different building and it's a separate organization. And so what they've effectively done is they've taken all innovative spirit out of the company and put it somewhere else. And that does two things. Firstly, it means that nobody ever hears of it ever again. And secondly, it gives it becomes like an exile. So anybody who has any good ideas sees that the ideas just go away to a different room and are never seen again. So it sort of kills the company innovative spirit. But also it means that the rest of the organization and this is, this is a very important point. Most large organizations do not in any way want to innovate as an organization, and specifically as people inside that organization. They have a sort of immune system that, that builds up against any form of change. And so by, by taking that innovation and putting it in another building, it effectively enables all of the people, all of the middle managers who, who under no circumstances want there to be any innovation. It enables them to ignore it completely and and to sort of carry on as if it wasn't happening at all the person in charge of it by removing them from the building as well it removes them from the conversations with his with their colleagues it takes them out of the political structure that's built up inside the organization it means that they're not in people's minds so they, they get passed over for, for other projects and for promotions it's career suicide basically so you just by setting up those labs and having innovation as a separate thing that's done, that's done somewhere else has enables organizations to not do it by their very fact of separating it away. The alternative is for the CEO to stand up in front of everybody and take his tie off and say, okay, here's the deal. The world is changing incredibly quickly. We used to think our business was slow and boring and that we were the very best of it and we would always would be. And now we realize our business is, is, our business is not even what we thought our business was five years ago and so therefore innovation is the thing that we all have to do and here are the frameworks and the incentives and so on for us to do it and those of you who are not interested in innovating or those of you who are interested in doing the same thing that you're doing today for the rest of your careers there is the door please leave right and and there's a fundamental difference between standing in front of everybody and saying innovation is something that we all have to do and we have to do now compared to saying here is our shiny director and they're going off and creating a department of innovation that will report back to us in a few years with the, with the thing we're going to do. So have you seen any companies who are doing it well at the moment? Innovating? Sure. It's all of the ones, it's all of the quite obvious ones. Amazon, Google. Uh, well, actually, maybe not Google to, a, to, a, to that degree, but, but certainly Amazon. Certainly really good retailers like Costco. People like the Inditex group, who is Zara, the retailer, uh, the, the clothing retailer, Netflix, HBO, or just the real, you know, the obvious sort of cultural leaders of the decade. Because the thing with Amazon, to take Amazon as an example, there isn't a single bit of Amazon which is standing still. Everybody is trying to improve their processes. I mean, you know, innovation is a very dangerous word to use because. It, it is taken in recent years. It's taken on this sort of holy meaning of you know this sort of sacred meaning of like ah I am innovating uh, as if it's some sort of heavy 
process, whereas actually what you're looking for is just day-to-day improvements. And companies like Amazon are just every single part of their operation is looking for day-to-day improvement. And if you can improve, you know, 1% a week in, in every aspect of your business, then over the course of a year, your business is radically transformed. And if you do that consistently year after year after year, then you become, you know, Jeff Bezos. Jeff and the, Bezos. And you, <laughs> and you become the richest man in the world, right? I think that's the other very strong learning that we've had over the past 20 years, which is the sort of moonshot innovation, which many organizations try to do, which is, and we're seeing this a lot now because we're coming to the end of this decade. And so many people are using it as an opportunity to do, they, they always have internal project names like, you know, Opportunity 2020 or, <laughs> or Project 2020 or something like that. And those sorts of corporate Project 2020s are three-year projects in order to effectively relaunch their company in 2020. And those never work. Whereas organizations like Amazon or the Taliban, uh, they're looking to relaunch their company this afternoon and then tomorrow morning and then tomorrow afternoon and then the morning of the day after that and the afternoon of the day after that and just consistently rebuilding and relaunching and, and renewing and improving incremental improvements on, uh, on a daily basis. And uh, so that's what I'm doing a lot of work with now is trying to teach new innovation models, which feel slower, but actually get you there much faster because it's incremental improvements on a daily basis rather than one big leap every few years. And do you find that you have a big pushback from people when you try to present these types of ideas to them? No, actually, it's quite interesting because in general, people really hate those big pushes, those big leaps. They're traumatic. Whereas the day-to-day improvements can actually be very comfortable because you can, you can make them organically. I mean, I teach a technique. I can teach it you now, if you like. Absolutely. Which well, we call it uh, constant legacy-free reinvention. And constant legacy-free re- reinvention is something that, you, that anybody can do. You can do it personally and, or you can do it as part of an organization. And basically, what you have to do is, is you choose a day. You can do it tomorrow. You can do it the rest of the day, if you like. And just for everything that you do, Every action you take, whether it's brushing your teeth or sending an email or going to a shop or whatever it is, or laundering your clothes, whatever. And, and every action you take, ask yourself two questions. The first question is, what problem am I solving by doing this action? And that instantly causes some trouble because you find that many people find that the problem they're trying to solve by the action they're taking perhaps isn't a problem in the first place. Or was once a problem, but no longer is, and so therefore, you know, the thing they're doing is is pointless. And so the obvious innovation there is to just not do that thing, and that itself can be quite innovative. But once you've worked out what the problem is that you're trying to solve, then you have to ask yourself the second question, which is, if I was to be solving this problem today, but I was doing it for the first time, and I had to use modern tools, how would I do it? And what you find when you ask that question is that. Most people and most organizations solve the problems that they have by taking actions which are old and out of date, which may well have been 100% sensible, in fact, may well have been incredibly innovative when you started doing it, but which today are incredibly, like I said, incredibly out of date. And so when you ask yourself that question, it gives you permission to look at every process in your organization or every process in your daily life and say, well, do I need to be doing this? What am I trying to do? And how can I... How can I do it better? And what you find is that if you can change two or three things, even two or three things a week, 
or two, three things a month, never mind two or three things a day, but certainly two or three things a month, then very rapidly over the course of a year, if you, if you change two or three things a month, maybe you've changed 36 things in your, in your personal process over the course of a year. That's a lot, right? That's actually, that's a radical personal transformation. But it's more than just a radical personal transformation. It's a radical personal transformation which inevitably draws you closer and closer to the cutting edge of modern technology and modern practice. Because again, one of the other major findings that I have in all of my work is that most organizations are not in the present day. It's whatever it is, six o'clock in the morning here in Colorado. It's, the, it's midday in, in Abu Dhabi where you are, right? And it's 1997 inside most companies. In the most companies aren't using digital tools correctly. They're not using the most modern ones. Most, you know, many companies still have fax machines. Many CEOs still have their emails printed out for them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so again, this is a, a, a very interesting thing. I'm, I'm brought in a lot of the time to talk about artificial intelligence and, you know, by organizations. Sort of like, you know, how can we use AI? Or God forbid, um, how can we use the blockchain? And after I've, after I've stopped my eyes from rolling, I then have to like, look into their current processes. And the first thing you have to say is, like, well, you can't use AI because currently you don't even use Outlook properly, right? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't have an internal culture which would enable you to do this, right? So let's fix that first. And once we fix that and we've got everything else up to the present day, then we can ask ourselves the question of what problem are you wanting to solve? And is AI the correct way to solve that problem? And again, usually the answer to that is no, it's not. Because we've solved the problem already, but just by giving everybody laptops rather than old Windows desktops, you know, or whatever it is, right? It's just bringing people up to the point of the day. And so the constant legacy-free reinvention thing is a very, very useful technique, even on a personal level. It slows you down for the day that you do it or the, or the few days that you do it in that it necessitates any large amounts of Googling because, you know, you have to pause and, like, research a new way of doing things for everything you do. But it does solve a lot of problems. I can give you a silly example. I found myself doing this process one morning when I was looking through my wardrobe for socks. And I realized that I spent much more time than I should do every morning looking for socks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> which was, now, so this is a trivial problem. Of course, it's just, this is a totally trivial problem. This isn't like solving world peace or, you know, build, you know, doing a massive multi-billion dollar merger or acquisition, something like that. But, Nevertheless, every morning I would be, you know, perceptibly aggravated by the fact I could never find a matching pair of socks. And that would like, you know, that would have an effect on the rest of my morning. And so I thought, well, okay, if I was solving this problem for the first time, what would I do? And so, you know, I go online and I Google and I look around and, and then I find that there's a, quite a few companies out there where you can subscribe to a regular sock delivery, right? And so now every six weeks, I, in the, in the post, I get a parcel of 10 identical new pairs of socks, which are really nice socks, right? And getting new socks is actually is one of the great pleasures in the world that people forget about. But every six weeks, I get a 10 new pairs of socks, which go into my sock drawer. All of my socks are now identical, so it doesn't matter if, I get that, if they're not paired up because they're all the same. And I never run out. And so now in the morning when I need to go put... I need some socks. I go and I open the drawer and there are lots of pairs of socks. And I pull one out and I put them on my feet and I go about my daily business. And I threw out all the ones with holes in and I threw out all the ones which didn't match. And, and now, 
It's incredibly trivial, but but it was a genuine problem. Like it was it was wasn't a very big problem, but it was a genuine problem. And I've so, and I've solved that problem by a tiny pause in my day to go. Oh, there must be a better way of doing it. And then using a modern tool, signing up for that better way of doing it. And now, if you do that to every little thing in your day, never mind. I'm not talking about like you know grand strategy for your career or like what's your next big investment, but like, you know, the way you make coffee every morning and, you know, the toothbrush that you use or where your toilet roll comes from or those sorts of things, right? Those sort of trivial things like that, you actually find that your life improves quite radically and it frees you up from cognitive load. And so it gives you extra space to think about the more interesting things and to do more abstract planning and stuff like that. And so it doesn't sound like futurism. It sounds like, in many ways, it sounds like, you know, like your, like your mother lecturing you before you go to university or something like that. But actually, it, it is because you can't, be a, you can't lead your multi-billion dollar organization, you know, multi-billion dollar retailing organization into the future of retailing if you yourself can't get your own shit together. Yeah, if you got holes in your socks and you can't brush your teeth properly, then you might uh, you need to deal with these things. Exactly, and, and it's not even not brushing your teeth properly, but it's like if every morning you walk into your bathroom to brush your teeth and you realize that you should have replaced your toothbrush two weeks ago, but you just haven't, then you have two problems. One, you're not brushing your teeth properly, but secondly, you will constantly be at some point in your brain thinking about your toothbrush. Whereas I have a electric toothbrush subscription where every six weeks, no, every three months, sorry, every three months, I get sent in the in the mail, I get sent a new head for my electric toothbrush, <laughs> which again is a totally trivial thing, but it means I never have to think about my toothbrush, which is really great. We'll just take a quick break. So I want to remind you to go to expatmoneyshow.com to pick up your free special report called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. We have had some really good feedback with this. It's actually a project I've been working on for probably about four years now and been offering it to my subscribers. And I am constantly updating it with the best and the newest resources for people wanting to go abroad. It is really amazing. I'm really happy with the work that we've done. And it's really different than a lot of the other projects out there or special reports or ebooks or anything like that. And this is one of the main differences. It is highly curated, it is highly condensed. It is not 400, 500 pages long and talking about every single thing out there and every single little detail. Actually, that doesn't serve anyone. Your best bet is always to go with the really, really condensed information so that you can connect the dots, so you can understand what's happening and how things fit together. And that's exactly what this special report does. So it's called 19 International Strategies to Grow and Protect Your Wealth Abroad. You can find it completely for free 100% free at expatmoneyshow.com. Okay, enjoy, and let's jump back into the interview. I remember reading some books, and they were saying that humans really have a certain amount of decisions that they can make in a day. And if you tax all of those decision-making powers, you know, in the first hour or two of the day, then when it comes time to, to make the big decisions when you're at work or you're on your, working on your business, perhaps you're going to be fatigued from these types of activities. Yes, I think that's, I, I think that's right. I think that's very, very right. And, but also it just, 
it's a habit that once you get into, you start to see improvements everywhere. And it becomes vaguely addictive to start making those improvements. And those improvements, again, can be anything from buying a new thing or, or subscribing to a new service, or it could just simply be moving the office printer to somewhere else or rearranging the desks or rearranging the lighting in the office or changing the org chart. And again, those sound trivial, but the printer being in the wrong place in the office, which wastes a minute of everybody's time three times a day over the course of a year, that adds up to something not good. Whereas putting the printer in the correct place in the office and saving everybody a couple of minutes a day actually is a really good thing. Not only is it a really good thing in itself, but it's also a really good thing in that it creates the atmosphere within the organization of we can fix things. And that itself is the innovative mindset you want to build. You don't build the innovative mindset by having a place filled with beanbags and, you know, and high caffeine cola in the fridge. You, you build an innovative mindset by having it socially acceptable, in fact, socially necessary for people to be making constant little improvements to everything that you do. So maybe not so much looking at the macro things, but really focusing first on those micro things. Yeah, because you can't do the macro things with your micro things broken. Just doesn't work. You just can't do it. I mean, you could say things. You can be like, yes, or, you know, Project 2020. In 2020, we will redefine our industry by blah, 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 blah. But if you can't get your shit together on a, you know, this afternoon, you're never going to be able to get it together in three years' time. Because three years' time is just a few hundred this afternoons in a row, right? There's nothing magical about the project that's finishing in three years' time because you have to start it today. And you start it today by taking these little actions every, you know, every day. And so if the printer is constantly broken, you can't redefine the future, right? You can't put a man on the moon if your chair is uncomfortable. So fix your chair, right? And don't wait for three years to fix your chair. Fix your chair today because the work you're going to do in that chair over the next three years is the real work, right? To so fix the chair. It's that sort, of, uh, that sort of thing. And it is very interesting how a lot of my work has turned out to be like this. Because much of the time I'm brought in almost as a science fiction writer, you know, to, to envisage a glorious flying car future for, that, for the organization. And you can certainly do that. You can certainly point them in that direction. But the real heart of the work is, okay, what is the next step for us to get from where we are today to, to this glorious flying car future that you've, you've sketched out for us? And, and th those next steps are the much more mundane, like, does everybody have a comfy desk? Are you all using Outlook properly? <laughs> Why are you constantly having that weekly meeting when I've been to that meeting three times and it's pointless? And they say, because we always have a weekly meeting. And you say, well, why? And they say, we don't remember. And you say, well, why didn't you stop having it? And they say, um, because we always have it. Uh. And actually, the real innovation is not having that weekly meeting. So what you can take away opposed to what you can add? Oh, well, either way, it doesn't, you know, take away or, or add. But the point is, is, is to question, is to ask those two questions. Like, what problem are we trying to solve by having this meeting? And in, that, and, and in many cases, the problem doesn't exist anymore. Or if it does exist, you ask yourself the question, well, what well, could we do this in a better way? And chances are, yes, you probably can by another process, which will save you more time and free up your staff to do more entertaining things. And so there's this, 
so there are two aspects there's the sort of the there's the grand vision thing which is very fun to do but there's also the on the ground implementation stuff and the on the ground implementation stuff is really like make your bed and clean the floor and do you have pens <laughs> like like do you have pens is actually quite an important thing I love it. So you go in for a consultant as a futurist, and these are some of the things that you need to deal with for some of these big organizations. Oh my God, yes. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. It's hilarious. It's really Sorry, Ben, but that's hilarious. It is hilarious, and, but, but it's true. And the, the do you have pens thing itself is actually very interesting because one of the great improvements that you can make in your life if you write to anything, right? If you take paper notes in any part of your life, right? One of the great improvements you can do is you can go to a pen shop, right? Take, literally take 20 minutes to do this. Go to a pen shop, a stationery shop, right? Try a load of different ballpoint pens and find the one that you really like. And it'll be a bit more expensive. It will be, right? But find the one you really, really like. Take a photograph of it, right? Buy a load of them, right? And then go, to that, and then go around the corner to the notebook section and find the notebook that you really like to write on because all notebooks are different. Right? And find the one that's got the right sort of paper and find the one that is the right size for your hand or your desk and find the one with the right sort of perforations or holes punched in it, whatever it is that, that fits the way you like to work and buy a load of those, right? And again, take a picture of them, right? And have the picture of both the pen and the notebook that you really like to use available for you. Find it on Amazon or your local e-commerce store or if you don't mind going back to that shop, then go back to that shop on a regular basis and just have a load of those pens and a load of those notebooks available for you, right? Now, that sounds stupid. No, it's Except funny because I've actually done this. I use a gel pen. It's a seven millimeter and I buy it at the local shop here in Abu Dhabi and I've got a dozen of them. And when I go to Japan, which I go every couple of months, I go to Muji and for like $2, they have a notebook. It's a, I'm looking at it right now. It's B5. I must have bought 40 of them last time and shipped them all back because they're just my favorite notebook. And I just write so much that I never have to worry about having a crappy pen or my crappy notebook. I always have the best. I have exactly what I want and I use it every single day for an hour, two hours. Exactly, exactly that. And I have, I, you know, J Japanese notebooks and Japanese pens are exactly where it's at. Exactly. So I, I have exactly my favorite Japanese pen and my favorite Japanese notebook which exactly fits the way I like to work, exactly fits, you know, and the two work together very nicely and they're smooth and everything and they're a pleasure to use. And what I find is that when you introduce that sort of mindset, although on one hand it sounds insanely pretentious and like <laughs> like really, I don't know, like wallpaper, like monocle magazines tall pretentious, right? You know, like, ah, yes, I only ever take notes using my Sakura gel pen <laughs> and my Nemazine, uh, you know, uh, A5 uh, perforated, you know, gridded notebook and all that. But actually having the correct tools available for you when you have done some research and worked out what your correct tools are is very, very important. And you cannot, in, you know, you cannot take your organization or yourself from where you are today to your grand vision of where you want to be in three years' time without having the correct tools. And the correct tools do come down to having the right pen and the right notebook and the correct coffee cup and the correct or, or, or whatever it is, right? The correct desk, the correct chair. The chair is, a silly, is again, is a great example of that, right? You're probably sat in it for a third of your life, mm -hmm. okay? So, like, get a good chair, 
Well, it's the same for beds. I systematically went through my, my sleeping patterns oh, a few years ago now, bought exactly the pillow that I wanted, did the research, ordered it. Same with the bedding, same with the mat, same with the sheets, same with everything. Because it's like, if I spend so much of my life here, what am I using a $500 mattress for? No, I'm going to go out and get a, exactly the mattress that's going to help me and exactly the pillow that's going to make sure that my back is aligned and that I sleep correctly so that I can attack the day and, and do well in my work life and in my career. Right. It's very easy to be sort of like aggressively, you know, power executive about it um, in that way. But it's also, but it, but, it, it, but it is a matter of just being nice to yourself, right? Um, because because all of these things we're talking about, whether it's innovation or futurism or just personal productivity or anything, are all at the end of the day just trying to make your life better, right? Whether it's by curing cancer or it's by it's running a you know running a cookie stand or just writing poetry, whatever it is, um, it doesn't really matter. It's just about making your life better, and so. Apply by slowing down a little bit and applying a little bit of attention to the daily things you do, um, and investing in the common everyday objects that you use all the time. That genuinely just is being nice to yourself and making your life a bit better, and that then gives you the, a much more solid basis on which you can then experiment with new stuff and, and innovate in new and, and entertaining ways. But you can't, you can't head off into the unknown future without having a solid basis of dependable tools. And so, you know, although, you know, there are the, you know, sometimes you'll see in museums, you know, the original, you know, the opening stanza to a Beatles song or like, you know, the original notes of, of some scientists from some great discovery and they're written on the back of a napkin or the back of an envelope or, you know, something like that. But that's, they shouldn't have had to have struggled like that. That, that little micro struggle of finding a pen and finding a napkin uh, or the back of an envelope, they should have, you know, like, how much better would it have been for John Lennon and Paul McCartney <laughs> if they'd had a really good Japanese ballpoint pen? <laughs> you know? Like, Very true. Maybe, Very we, true. maybe we would have had an extra album out of them. I don't know, right? Like, so it's, it's, also, it's also just a matter of setting yourself up to do the really hard work. And you set yourself up to do the really hard work by laying a foundation of good tools and good practice around the really easy stuff. Yeah, I definitely agree with you 100% there. So you mentioned earlier that some people are trying to do this giant innovation in two years, 2020. What are some of those things that companies are doing right now, which we would traditionally think of as futurism? What are some of those technologies that are being splashed over the news and, and really are going to change the planet? Well, so the obvious ones are artificial intelligence and the use of, the use of that. Some people would say blockchain here. I wouldn't. I think it's nonsense for long and complex reasons. I think the really so a lot of innovation that we're seeing today is in is is the effects of technologies which came into being a few years ago. So one of the things I'm very fascinated by at the moment are the is the intersections of good battery technology and very good small electric motors. So we're starting to see. So I live in Los Angeles and and, and Los Angeles and up and down the West Coast, San Francisco as well. We've had this very large influx in the past six months of electric scooters and electrically assisted pedal bicycles for, for rent around the city. So the listeners who've never seen these, that if you think of a if you think of an old like child's kick scooter, you know, like a razor scooter type thing, um, there are electric scooters, the electric versions of those that do about 
I think uh, 18 miles an hour at the most. And in Venice Beach, where I live, there are probably a few thousand of them just on the street, just like leaning up against buildings on the side of the road, parked, you know, parked next to buildings, just left around the place. And you have an app on your phone and there's a QR code on the top of the scooter. And if there's one that's free, as in it doesn't have somebody on it, then you can go up to it and with the app on your phone, you can unlock it and you can ride it around. And then when you've finished, when you've got to the place you want to be, you lock it back up with the app on your phone and you leave it by the side of the road. That is a really interesting innovation in that it comes about from two or three technologies which didn't exist a couple of years ago, the strong enough batteries and strong enough electric motors, the GPS built into it, the, the QR code, the app net system, the apps on your phone, and it's radically transforming the way the city operates. In, in less than six months, it's radically, really radically transformed the way that we, we can live in that area because you no longer have to take your car on those sorts of car length journeys. It's very cheap. It's transforming the way the roads are used, making the local council put in more cycle lanes. It's transforming the way people are driving because you suddenly have all of these thousands of people around you on little electric scooters. It's transforming the way that the local markets and the local shops operate because people are going to those shops on those little electric scooters. And so it's, it's those sorts of social innovations which I find more interesting than just here's AI or here's blockchain or here's 3D printing or something like that, uh, those sorts of big label things. It's more the, the grand social transformations that come about from, these, from the release of these new technologies. So whether it's electric scooters or electric push bikes in, in the West Coast of America or it's contactless payments or it's mobile-based e-commerce or those sorts of enabling technologies which, which transform more than one industry at the same time and also transform social practice at the same time. Those are the things that I think are the most interesting and the things that we need to watch. And again, that's the thing that people can do themselves. I spend a lot of time teaching senior executives how to do this and it's mostly a matter of just being observant, just going to, you know, just, just getting out onto the street and seeing how people are using these new tools in these slightly complex ways. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I go to China quite often. And in Shanghai, you see these yellow bicycles, push bikes, and they're everywhere. And they're all unlocked with your app. Same type of thing. And it's literally like, like you just see yellow bikes everywhere. Like old, old aunties and old grandmas are using this type because it's so accessible now. And it really is changing everything in China. So I'm glad to see that things like that are making its way into the United States. And now it's also with the, the battery power and the small engines, like you mentioned, you know, that just opens up in a completely new avenue as well. Right. And the, those, the, the yellow bikes in Shanghai are exactly the same. It's the same system. And they, they're radically transforming China. You know, they, they've only been there for two years. Uh, the last statistics I saw was something, you know, ridiculous. Like there's a hundred million of them across China. There's a hundred million of those. But it's nuts. It's it's like you you walk around Shanghai and they're everywhere. Every street corner has thirty of these bikes. And then during lunchtime, everybody's on the bike. Like they've all disappeared. You know, I, I took me a few minutes to even figure out what was going on at first. <laughs> when you look at the way that that changes the way the city operates because if now everybody coming out of their office building at lunchtime to go and get something to eat and hang out with their friends or whatever instead of walking places everybody's getting one of those bicycles 
it changes the way that you have to plan the city. It changes the way that you, the way that the sort of cater, you know, the food industry has to work. It changes the way the packaging industry has to work, right? So if, if you're selling dumplings by the side of the street and you have lots of people who are cycling to you, then you need to be putting those dumplings into something which they can then hold on their bicycle. True. Right? And so that changes, you know, there's a lot of transformations that happen that are very small and very subtle and that all happen all at the same time. So at the same time as that is happening, you also have a, a social movement against the use of plastic. So the new packaging for the dumpling seller has to not only be bicycle compatible, but it also has to be not made of plastic. Mm -hmm. Eco-friendly. Um, eco-friendly and that then requires a whole new thing which which gives you then an opportunity to be the company that makes that new packaging but it also has all these downstream effects and it's those downstream effects which is actually where the core futurism is i think it's actually saying okay well if if this is the case and this is the case and this is the case when you add all these things together that will mean that people will do this which will mean that they will need this thing which currently doesn't exist there's the opportunity. There is the, there is the potential threat if you're the plastic bag manufacturer. This is really interesting because I expected to get on the call with you and the entire time just be speaking about artificial intelligence and robotics and things like that, kind of these big swooping changes that you would expect. But really the conversation is focused on like the micro, like we mentioned. So that's really interesting. Right, right. And, and actually there's a reason behind that. It's psychologically much easier for people to think about the future with these sorts of massive monolithic topics like AI. Because once you say that, it actually gives them the opportunity to not think anymore, right? I know it's like standing on, the, on a beach and looking over the sea and seeing a massive storm coming towards you. On the one hand, it's, it's terrifying. But on the other hand, it's actually quite relaxing because you know what's about to happen. And you know it's all going to go to shit. But, <laughs> you know, but, but you're like, okay, AI is coming. It's going to change everything. But if you think of it as being this massive monolithic thing, then it kind of gives you the opportunity to, to zone out. Or, well, not to zone out, it gives you the opportunity to freak out. And freaking out is an excuse not to think. Whereas if you say, no, like AI is just another thing that's coming along, but here is, here is, here is the massive complexity of human society that you're going to have to negotiate on a daily basis, then that's actually less comforting because what it implies is that you get to shape your own universe and you get to shape your own universe by every single decision you make and every single observation you make. And, and you have to start, you had to start doing that today by paying attention to what's going on and paying attention to what you're doing. And so, and that's, that's hard work, right? That's really hard work. It's actually really traumatic. In fact, for many people, most people would really like it's. A, it's almost a religious thing. It's. The, it's in many ways. It's. It's the fundamental difference between the Abrahamic religions and the Dharmic sort of Buddhist religions, right? The Abrahamic religions, to to be incredibly insulting to everybody concerned, but the Abrahamic religions, at the end of the day, there's like the world ends, right? And so, if you believe in the second coming of Christ, then it doesn't really matter what you do this afternoon. Because at the end of the day, Jesus is coming back. And if you're a true believer, it's all good, right? But so you can freak out about the, the awesome majesty about the second return of, of the Savior. But it doesn't mean you have to get out of bed. Whereas the Buddhist religions, 
there is no such thing as that. Like that's not happening, right? There isn't even the. It's it, it's it's you have to pay attention to everything you're doing right now, like right now. In fact, that's the whole prank is paying attention to what is happening right now, and so that's and that's way more disturbing. It's much much harder, much much harder. But I would posit. I mean, I'm a Buddhist, so it's you know I'm biased here, right? But I would posit that once you once you start doing that, actually, it's much. much I, I, I hesitate to say the word productive, but because that has connotations of itself. But but it's a much better way of approaching the future. Is you you approach the you approaching the future one minute at a time, starting from to, starting from now, as opposed to approaching the future by saying sometime in the sometime in twenty you know in, in the twenty twenties AI will appear and save us all. And so I can just sit down and wait for it. You know, I'll just wait for IBM to bring out a new version of Watson and everything will be fine. Whereas actually what you have to be doing is like, you know, paying attention to everything you do right now. And then the, fu- and then the future unfolds with you minute by minute. That really speaks to responsibility. Yes. Yes, it does. It does. Because it's so easy. It's so easy in the face of, of grand transformation and grand disruption. It's so easy to say, oh, well, we'll just let Amazon do it. Right, or I'll just wait until I'll just wait until Google destroys my business, or I'll wait until the new I'll wait until the new iPhone comes out and that'll, that'll bring me a solution to this problem. It's very easy to sit back and, and sort of wait for it to happen, whereas actually genuine innovation is looking at everything you do minute by minute and going, how can I make this better? How can I make this better? What am I doing here? Why am I doing this? And making it your personal responsibility to do that on a minute by minute basis. And that manifests itself in lots of interesting and entertaining ways. So, for example, this week on Twitter, you know, as we're recording this, it's the middle of the World Cup. And a few days ago, Japan were knocked out by Belgians, I think, right? And there's a photograph that's going around on Twitter right now of the, of the dressing room, the Japanese dressing room after they left, right? And the Japanese had just been knocked out of the World Cup. And so, obviously, they would be emotionally distraught and exhausted and all that sort of stuff and the photograph of the dressing room after they left is the most pristine dressing room you have ever seen it looks like it looks like it's brand new right they they because they cleaned it and tidied it and made it perfect and then they left a thank you note in russian to the stadium staff right it's this pristine thing because the japanese that particular bit of japanese culture is you have to pay, pay attention to doing the best thing you can do at that moment. And for them, the best thing they could do at that moment, for many reasons, was to make sure that they left their changing room absolutely spotless. Now, once you start instigating that sort of habit, then you become quite irritating like I am, which is like, I, I sort of, you know, tidy up everywhere I go. Out of habit, if I've stood at the teller, you know, the, sort of, you know, the, the table at the, at the bank, and there's a pile of leaflets, you know, and I'm doing something with the person behind the counter. And there's a pile of leaflets there, as they usually are. I will, like, naturally straighten them up. <laughs> when I go to a hotel, I might be spending, I don't know, $400, $500 at a five-star in a hotel. And I clean the room before I leave because I can't, I can't imagine the cleaner coming in and seeing it as a pigsty. I would never want someone to look at me like that, even if they were never even to see me or see who I was or who lived in the room, I would just never want anyone to deal with that. Exactly. And, and uh, I have a, I, I do exactly the same thing, but I also do the thing, which is when I check into the room, I go through the room and I remove all of the printed material, all of the sort of little 
you know the, the pillow menu and the guidebooks. The pillow, and, yeah, 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 exactly. And the guide to the spa and all of that sort of stuff. And the local what's on in you know what's on in Paris magazine or whatever. Right? And I take all that stuff and I very carefully put it into a couple, you know, put it into the desk drawer, and I lightly rearrange the room because. I'm going to be there for the next half of many days and I'm going to be working and living my life there. And I don't, and those things are not improving my life and getting, and getting rid of moving distractions. Them. Yeah. They're distractions. And so that's, that doesn't sound like the act of a futurist who's meant to be standing on stage and, you know, proclaiming about the powers of artificial intelligence, but I, which I certainly do, but, but actually it is fundamentally part of that work in that you can't clearly operate in a multivariant, multi-influential world where you're trying to synthesize lots and lots of changes and changes in, in the culture in order to think about predictions and opportunities for the next few years, if you are consistently harassed by the fact that the one pen you could find before you left the house that morning was a chewed up old biro that doesn't really work very well and the notebook you've got is something is the is the telephone side notepad from your hotel room that you had to steal because you because you hadn't got an you know, because you haven't got anything to write on. Whereas if you paid attention and you've got that habit of paying attention to the things you do, you'll find that you have the three perfect you know, gel pens and the perfect Japanese notebook, and then you're ready to go and think the bigger thing. Well, I remember reading, and I don't know if it was from one of your blog articles or from Twitter or where it was, but you mentioned the words cognitive protection. Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Because I think that really ties into what we're discussing here. Yes. So cognitive protection is exactly what you're just saying. It's giving yourself the space to to think about things that you want to be thinking about. So that is stripping your environment of the things which are distracting you and stripping your environment of the things which are actively getting in the way of thinking ahead. So that can be distractions. It can be environmental things. So having bad lighting or bad ergonomics or distracting noises or something like that or it could just be unresolved little problems like you have a terrible pen um, <laughs> and so in every field there is a there is lots of very good research about about that whether it's turning off the auto check email on your desktop or changing the color temperature of the lighting in your room or reducing the ambient sound the ambient noise in your room or or changing the way you eat or cancelling a particular project or sacking a particular client, no matter what it is, right? You, <laughs> it's, it comes down to the thing that the vast majority of people, and certainly I would imagine the vast majority of our listeners, your work is cognitive rather than physical or majority, majority cognitive rather than physical. And so you want to be giving yourself, in the same way as if you were digging a hole in the ground for a living, you wouldn't tie one, one arm behind your back. I mean, or you wouldn't wear restrictive clothing, right? If you think for a living, effectively, if you think for a living, then you want to be doing, paying attention to the same things. Are you cognitively tying one arm behind your back? Are you cognitively wearing restrictive clothing? Um, and for thinking, there are, there are many good best practices for that. Well, because one of the things that instantly comes up when I hear this word of cognitive protection is, say, your desktop when you're working on the computer. Now, I have probably every month or two months, I have an argument with my mother. When she uses the computer, when she needs me to fix something, I look at her web browser, and she has maybe 60 different tabs open 
on every single different topic that you could possibly think of. Now, when I do my writing and I'm writing my blogs and I'm working on the podcast and my business and everything like that, I will have one or two or three and they will all be bulked together on exactly what I'm working on. I try to make sure that Facebook is not running in the background and putting up little numbers of new messages. I don't have my Twitter dinging every time someone retweets some of my things or emails coming into my inbox and I'm getting push notifications. I try to eliminate all of those types of things because when I'm focused on one, I really want to be tuned into just that. Mm -hmm. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Now, I will be careful about overly being overly prescribing. I, I feel the same way. If I see somebody with 60 open tabs, it gives me the screaming heebie-jeebies. <laughs> and and certainly, certainly if you see somebody with like a thousand files on a desktop or, or, you know, or as I did the other day, saw somebody with 10,000 unread emails. Um, that, that to me is, is, is a nightmare. But for those individuals, they may or may not find that the most effective, depending on their cognitive style, they may or may not find that the most effective way of thinking. But the point is, is that everybody needs to work that out, right? Everybody needs to work out what is actually the best way for you to get your work done. And for me, and it sounds like for you, the sort of clean slate approach is the best. For other people, it's different. But regardless, they have to you have to get to that point where you know what it is and and then you can maximize for that thing but most people don't even think about knowing what it is exactly it has to come down to a conscious thought yes exactly it has to come down to a conscious thought it has to come down to to a, to a conscious and and sort of considered considered opinion and so once you have come to that sort of come come down to those conscious thoughts then you're able to to move forward very very confidently and that, again, comes back to that sort of daily practice of improvement, which is just questioning every so often, just, you know, questioning, like, Am I do- is this right? Now, there are traps in that. There are, you know, you can spend your entire time experimenting with new ways to keep a to-do list, or you can spend your entire time, you know, ordering obscure Japanese ballpoint pens off the internet <laughs> and testing them. And, and that does nothing other than make you an expert in Japanese ballpoint pen. But, but nevertheless, you still do have to it does still pay off quite heavily to pay attention to these things in the same way as you would if you were digging a hole in the ground and you found that your spade was broken, right? You would go and get a new spade. And when you went and bought a new spade, you would spend some time testing all of the possible spades until you found one that was really good and then bought that one, right? And then bought two of them. But what most people do when they're, with their thinking practice, with their like cognitive work, is that they they've known for a long time that their spade is broken. It's just that they don't feel they should go and get themselves a new one. And they certainly don't feel they should go and try out other new ones before buying one. It's a tenuous and terrible metaphor, but, it, but I think it's true. Well, kind of bringing things full circle a little bit, talking about the Eastern religions, I think a lot of this also comes back to feng shui. So really everything in its place and having a purpose for being there. Yes, exactly. And exactly. And I think feng shui is really just codified and, and sort of mythology covered, you know, restating of, of those basic principles. I think, you know, you know, if you look at a lot of the, the sort of basic feng shui principles, they're not crazy. The, the, the covering mythology might be in many ways unnecessary, right? So for example, you know, the door not opening directly into the room because it allows the spirits of prosperity or whatever to get out or whatever, whatever the mythology is. It's obviously not the case, but, but it's quite sensible not to have the room, not not to have a door opening into the room because it lets the heat out. 
for it. Um, uh, you know, and it makes it more it makes for a more pleasant architectural uh, sort of structure. And so, so yes, I think I think something like feng shui is, uh, are very they're very very useful rules. And if the if the mythology behind them delights you, then that's that's also the good as well. Perfect, Ben fascinating conversation with you today completely different than i expected but nonetheless amazing amazing conversation well thank you very much well if my listeners if they want to reach out to you if they want to learn more about what you do where can we send them you can send them to my website benhammersley.com or twitter far too much at at benhammersley or they can email me ben at benhammersley.com um and I'm six foot six and have a handlebar mustache and lots of tattoos. So if you see somebody walking around who's six foot six with a handlebar mustache and lots of tattoos, it might be me. So come and say hello. Absolutely. Anyways, thank you so much, Ben. I'll talk to you soon. Okay. You have a great day. Thank you very much. And you. Hey, everyone. Mikkel here. So I have an ask for you today. If you're enjoying this podcast, what I want you to do is go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you want to leave us a five-star review, even better. If not, tell us why. We are really doing our best to make this show the absolute best it can be to help as many people to go offshore and inspire entrepreneurs and investors and business owners to move their businesses abroad. There's so much to be had in this industry. I love doing this work and I love doing this podcast, but we want to get the message out there to more people. And the best way to do that is with reviews. So if you have ever gotten one good tip, one good thing from this show, if you enjoy listening to us every single Wednesday or whenever you listen during the week, then please take 30 seconds out of your day, go out there, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It actually makes a big difference for the show, for the visibility, and really helps get the word out there. So I appreciate that. Thank you so much, everyone, for your support. This episode may be over, but your journey to greatness continues by visiting our webpage and signing up for our newsletter. For convenient access to new episodes, show notes, and other crucial resources, visit expatmoneyshow.com. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode of the Expat Money Show. Safe travels. I have managed to secure exclusive rights to a block of villas in one of the hottest up-and-coming regions in my current home country, Panama. Join me Saturday, May 4th at 10 a.m. Central, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for our special presentation called Investors Workshop, capitalizing on the globally recognized resort brand coming to Panama. We will discuss how the tourism landscape in this region will change rapidly upon the public announcement of this project and how I have secured the rights for my clients to capitalize on this opportunity before anyone else. Thanks to my connections in the region, I have negotiated pricing that front runs everyone else. Think early, early bird pricing. From gourmet restaurants to vibrant clubs, poolside activities, and even live bands, this resort is going to pump some serious life into the region. But this isn't what excites me or what should excite you either. The exciting part is that these world-class amenities and top brand will attract tens of thousands of tourists. Tourists who will fork over top dollar to stay at our investment properties. Register free at expatmoney.com forward slash webinars. That's expatmoney.com forward slash webinars to register for this free real estate workshop. See you on May 4th at 10 a.m. Central Time. That's 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Go to expatmoney.com forward slash webinar.